Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited Plus, Episode 7. For premium subscribers and thanks for your ongoing support. One of Canada's best-kept secrets is the Nahani Valley in Canada's Northwest Territories. Fedora's travel guide writes, Dark mountain spires pierce the fog against a steely sky, making Nahani National Park seem more akin to Mordor than Canada. The park can only be accessed by boat or float plane by intrepid travelers seeking to conquer the rapids of the Nahani River or summit the formidable Cirque of the Unclimbables. Its impenetrable forest and mountains may be the primary reason Nahani sees limited visitors, but perhaps it's also because the park is shrouded in macabre legends befitting of its menacing landscape. The supernatural lore has earned Nahani the moniker The Valley of the Headless Men, and many believe this UNESCO World Heritage Site to be haunted. I recently caught up with a filmmaker and explorer who's planning an expedition to the Nahani region in hopes of learning more about the valley's many mysteries and perhaps even solving some of its riddles. Mark McPherson is a director, filmmaker, and explorer. He's always been fascinated with the experiences and history of exploration through travel and creative studies. He's the creative director at Fresh Cut TV in Calgary, Alberta, and an expert in digital media strategy and production. Mark McPherson, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Richard? Thanks for having me. This is something I just learned of very, very recently about the Nahani Valley and yep. all of these amazing legends, the Valley of the Headless Men. Why is this? I'm just hearing about this now. This is like Canada's best kept secret. How did you find out about, about the Nahani Valley? Oh, wow. Uh, you know what? I found out about it by chance Ooh, a long time ago, I was in university, I was taking an exploration history class, and I found these books, uh, they were kind of in a mix of explorer journals, uh, but this one had pictures from the Northwest Territories by the Mackenzie River, and it had this image of what's known as Virginia Falls, and then the Handy Valley, and it looked so stunning and amazing, and uh, it reminded me of pictures of like those deep Colorado canyons, and and I was blown away that something like this was in Canada, first from a nature aspect. And then reading about it, the first thing it said is, uh, you know, this is near Dead Man's Valley where there's a famous story about two brothers who were found with their heads missing. And uh, that was the first thing kind of kicked it off for me and uh, wanted to kind of look into it a little bit more. And, and before we get into some of these legends, just set the table for those not familiar with the Nahani Valley up in the Northwest Territories. Give us the vitals, its its size, its location, some of the terrain. Oh, geez. Uh, yeah, so Nahani Valley is located in the Northwest Territories, uh, kind of in the southwest portion, close to the Alberta and BC border. Um, the size of it, oof, don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it's huge. I, I believe when I was doing a tour up there, I was told it's like the size of Switzerland, uh, just the, the national park itself. It's, it's very large. Um, I know I did probably just flying through the area. We were flying around for seven hours from uh, Fort Simpson, which is probably one of the closest nearby towns. And even a seven to eight hour day, you couldn't cover all the areas. Uh, it, it is just massive. It's uh, very remote. And a lot of the areas you can only get into by float plane or you got to go by the river. And uh, one of the more prominent features is Virginia Falls. Tell me about it. Give me a sense of its size and scope. 
Yeah, so Virginia Falls, um, it's basically, to give you a side, sense of the size, it's twice the height of uh, Niagara Falls. Um, it is just massive. It's kind of the crown jewel of the park. Um, it's kind of just before you get to the Headless Valley in those areas, but uh, it is kind of the kind of place to see up there and uh, is where most people kind of go to if they're going to go to visit Nahani and do a whitewater rafting tour or something, that's kind of the, the place to go, so to speak. So, and, and of course has some stories around it in terms of just because of its massive size. Uh, of course they've had a lot of incidents happen around that area over the years or decades. So, and the, uh, the area is inhabited by the, is it the Dene people? Yeah. Yeah. It's the Dene would be the main group there and the Dene are made up of a number of, subgroups underneath it um probably the main group in kind of in the hardy area would be in a area called nahani butte uh where there's a first nation settlement there and i believe there's 90 people living there at the moment it's a pretty small community uh and it's a kind of a end point for a lot of people doing the rafting tours they'll end up there uh to get back to fort simpson but they're they're kind of at the heart of kind of at the end of the uh, whole Nahanni Valley along the South Nahanni River. And, uh, and of course, for them, uh, Virginia Falls is called Nalicho Falls. Um, that would be the Dene word for it. And, uh, yeah, they would be the main group there that have been living there for centuries and are connected to a lot of the stories and incidents that have happened in the past. So before we get into the uh, the tale of the, uh, the miners and so forth that have um – turned up headless. Talk to me about what the, the Nahani Valley means to the Dene people. Do they consider parts of it to be haunted or cursed or uh, how does it um, how does it sort of figure into their their mythology or their legends? You know, for I'm, I'm in the process of still getting all that information. I am getting bits of it. Um, the way I've had it explained to me, just, just from them living in the area, uh, I explained to me is kind of the whole area is like their home. So they're used to traditionally the way they would have lived up there is they would have gone around from region to region uh, based on the seasons and kind of collected what they needed, whether it was spring, summer, fall. So whether it was there was certain game or wildlife in a certain area or um, even things like they would build these moose skin boats. So they, you know, you'd keep your moose skins from the end of one season, use those to, Again, in the spring, you cut down a certain type of tree, make your basically your hull of your canoe out of it, put the moose skins on, and use that to travel up and down the river. And there were certain areas it'd stay at different times of the year. Uh, in terms of there, they do have a few myths and legends. Uh, I know by Nahani Butte, there's uh, kind of a main mountain right next to it where they have some stories relating to a large god or figure that kind of lived up there. And uh, But a lot of it's very... I don't want to say it's secretive, but some of it, it's it's hard to get some of these stories on. And some of these stories go back centuries upon centuries. Uh, but one thing they, I have uh, heard a few stories on are in, are in relation to the Naha tribe, which were um, basically a mountain tribe that uh, existed centuries ago and were known as kind of these fierce warriors, kind of a bit mysterious as they were kind of up on their own, but they would kind of come down in the lowlands and attack the Dene tribes and raid them. And, uh, and then around the turn of the century um, or late 1800s, they kind of d disappeared is what the, 
is how it's been explained by um, basically European explorers and stuff. So a lot of European explorers never experienced them, but heard about them. And so there's a lot of different stories and stuff in relating to them and where they may have gone and uh, what happened to them. There are also legends of giants, uh, I understand. Did you hear about the giants in the Nahani Valley? Uh, I heard a little bit, one of like kind of a giant god that is actually related to the the one mountain right next to Nahani Butte, but it, it sounded more of one that was kind of more to kind of took care of them and uh, kind of took care of the area and kind of kept, um, and one person kind of explained to me, kind of kept some of the evil stuff away from them, but was not very specific as to what that was, kind of left me hanging there. So. Right, and also uh, some some cryptids, uh, Bigfoot uh, and the like. Did you hear any, any tales of, of Bigfoot up there? Yeah, you know, I, I did hear one at the end. So uh, when I was leaving, um, a gentleman who was uh, kind of helping transport me across the river. Uh, Nahani Pete in the summer is only accessible by boat. You can't drive there. So uh, when he was taking me back with him, another guy, he was telling me a story about his son and his friend claimed that they had saw something that looked a lot like Bigfoot uh, right in Nahani Butte one day, just standing on a mound. He saw this big, tall, hairy thing. And then the thing just kind of disappeared like that. And him and his buddy both saw it at the same time. Um, and then there was a few little stories of things like weird, some people have said they've seen weird creatures and along the river right near the edge of the town and stuff like that. Uh, and, uh, so there's some tales around, uh, some kind of river creature. Um, but yeah, definitely you know, heard a little bit of that though. A lot of them would say that a lot of people haven't had any experiences either. So, and what about unidentified flying objects? Um, I am, unfortunately, I didn't get to hear anything like that. So uh, I didn't hear any, but I, I do know some of the stories and stuff you hear out there say some people have experienced things like that as well. It almost sounds like a, a I'm not for sure how familiar you are with um, a Skinwalker Ranch down in Utah, but it's, uh, it's one of these one-stop shopping paranormal uh, places that, that has all of that contained within a few hundred square um, kilometers, I guess, and and uh, but this uh, this seems to tick all the boxes for uh, you know uh, uh, paranormal uh, researchers and so forth. Does it? Are there? I mean, I know that that access certain parts of the uh, Nahani Valley are off limits, and and uh, there's a, a limited number of people that are allowed to go there. But uh, yeah. is it becoming kind of a? a, a a destination for for filmmakers and explorers and and maybe even I don't I don't know like ghost hunters and that sort of thing. You know what? I, I think it's still been kind of limited, and and I think it's just because it is such a remote, isolated area. I mean, to get there requires you know a, a bit of energy. I'm lucky where I live here in Alberta. Um, I, I was able to drive up there. It was a long drive, but you could take a flight up there and then and then connect. But when, once you get to kind of the main areas, then you got to drive further beyond that and uh and find a float plane and to get in there so um it, it is there is limitations how many people can just go through since it's a unesco world heritage site and a national park they can only have so many people doing even the river tours. so you do see there's people who want to get out in the wilderness that will do the main river tours which do go by some of the areas where you get like the mcleod brother stories and things like that and a lot of them are a lot of the tales and stories relate to areas close to the river um, but the area like Dead Man Valley, which is the area that in a lot of the stories you read 
through RM Patterson and, and them. That's the area where a lot of they said there was something evil lurking there, um, and that a lot of the First Nation groups avoided that area. Now, when I talked to them, they told me they didn't avoid the area, but a lot of the older journals from explorers mentioned that. And that is one area that is restricted to the public. So the only people who can go into Dead Man Valley are uh, if you're part of the Dene tribe of First Nations. Uh, to get in there, you have to have special access. So um, I was fortunate. I, I've been granted access to go in there, which is what we're trying to do with our adventure documentary we're hoping to be able to go in there which we haven't been able to do yet and uh, just explore the area a little bit just to kind of get a sense of the area and and why it contains all this mystery and uh and all these stories and stuff linked to it but i can say one thing seeing it from the air is that it is an area where i'm told a lot of you get a lot of cloud cover a lot of moisture traps in that valley which kind of naturally gives it a mysterious feel to it um, that might be feeding that, but, uh, yeah, that's definitely an area I, I'm looking forward to hopefully get to explore in the next year or two to kind of just kind of get a sense of that area and, and why some of these stories are linked to it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And the, when you went up to collect some of these uh, oral histories of the region from the Dene, uh, are they reluctant to talk about it? Are they wary uh, or are they welcoming and more than happy to share? Um, I would say there's a huge reluctance, uh, even though a lot of these stories might be new to us. I, I know they're new to me when I figured it out, but um, when you go back, I guess these stories were a lot more popularized, especially in the 1950s and 60s. So he talked to someone back from those times. Some of them said they'd hear the odd thing, or there was even, a, a, I believe, a news article on the McLeod brothers being found headless from way back uh, in the early 1900s. But uh, but for them, I think they, because they're to them, it's more they've known about it for a long time. They don't want to be associated just to that. You know, they don't want to be associated to some of the negative connotations of that. So there is a bit of reluctance to open up because they're they're worried about people kind of going crazy with it or, or adding, you know, kind of going off in random directions. But at the same time, um, as I've gotten to know some of the people in the area and they've opened up a little more and you kind of build that familiarity, some of them have said, Oh, there are some stories here. Uh, we just, they just want to make sure they kind of trust the people they're telling them to. So, uh, I guess we've sort of teased it long enough. Uh, you mentioned the McLeod brothers and, uh, just sort of set the stage. They went up there looking for gold. What happened? Yeah, the so yeah, Frank and William McLeod, they're kind of the big story most people are familiar with if they're familiar with any story up there. But basically they were kind of two uh, Métis sons that ended up going into the Nahanni looking for gold. There's always rumors, because um, we're talking about kind of around the Klondike days. So a lot of people after they were uh, – in the Yukon looking thought, oh, there could be a lot of these gold deposits like that in the Nahani. So the McLeod brothers had gone up there looking for it and they just, they didn't, they didn't come back. So they disappeared for a while. Um, but that wasn't abnormal. A lot of people that went off in the wilderness, sometimes if you got trapped in the winter, you had to kind of just settle in. And, you know, a lot of these guys had 
were used to surviving and getting through. So, but after a certain amount of time, their, uh, their third brother, uh, Charlie, uh, decided to go look out, go to find them and went out there with some RCMP and stuff. And they ended up finding the two brothers, uh, kind of at the side of the river with their heads off and missing. And, uh, I, I've probably read about three or four different variations of this. Some say, that it looked like they were both lying there or tied to a tree with the heads off. Some have said one looked like he was trying to crawl away with a gun nearby uh, with the head off and the other one just kind of lying like it was in the sleep. Um, but, but it's kind of, you know, that's what kind of led to all these ideas of, well, what did this, whether it was an animal or a spirit or, or maybe another person, there's rumors, maybe they found gold and someone else, uh, killed them um it's been kind of one of the main mysteries that kicked off the the kind of the headless valley uh mythology of the area right and they had been missing for some time i think something like three years right when charlie finally decided to go up and look for them in 1908 yeah it had been it had been three years uh before they went up there to find them so it had been quite a while and uh there there's a lot of rumors there's a a uh, another guy who was rumored to maybe have been with him. Um, can't remember his name offhand, but he was basically known as what would be called a remittance man. So he would have been someone from the UK who probably had some issues, whether he had, whether he had some kind of personality issue or had done something bad. It was pretty common for a lot of people in the UK to kind of send that son away to Canada back in those days and give him an allowance, their remittance, and uh, to keep him over here to avoid any embarrassment to the family but then you had a few of these guys that would show up in kind of these edge regions like up in the Nahani and there's rumors he was up there with them looking for gold and uh, I had a chat with one gentleman uh, who's still alive today who worked in a mining camp up in northern BC and he said he actually got to meet uh, the third brother Charlie because his son was working at the camp and he told him a little bit about the story of discovering his brother's uh, dead with the heads off and he, he was certain that it was this third guy that was behind it because uh, there was rumors that he was spotted in Vancouver afterwards uh, with a bit of money and uh, looking all well dressed when he, he didn't have a lot of money to begin with and then there was even rumors that he ended up uh, somewhere in Alberta around the Edmonton area and, and people uh, comments on him seemed like this very nervous kind of guy who was always kind of paranoid and, and whether he had maybe a mental health issue or whether um, it was out of guilt, no one knows. But the third brother, Charlie, was pretty uh, pretty confident that he thought that this guy may have uh, killed his brothers in their sleep to try to get off with some gold and that maybe they had actually found some gold up, up in the area, which no one had yet at that time. So, so it was... Uh after the incident with the McLeod brothers losing their head, that this became, I guess, forever known as uh, Dead Man Valley or uh, Headless Creek. Yeah. Right. And But there were others as well. You mentioned the uh, the um, uh, Scottish engineer, uh, I think it was, that was uh, traveling with them. There was someone else never seen again. Then there was another prospector, Yukon prospector, Martin Jorgensen. Uh, who yes. almost a decade later um, met a similar fate. Tell me about Jorgensen. Yeah, so Jorgensen's an, the, another one who was interesting. Uh, it was said that he ended up building uh, a cabin very close to the edge of Dead Man's Valley, some believe right in. And 
they said there was kind of a time period there where it seemed like all of a sudden him and a couple guys that were working with him uh, seemed to have a little bit more money all of a sudden. And they, a lot of people thought that maybe he had found gold up there. And, uh, and it was kind of, I believe, around the flat river area. But, um, but anyway, at one point they went up searching for him and they found his cabin uh, completely burnt down and his body again uh, dead with the, the head missing. And uh, so that was kind of the, the second example of here. Like, okay, here's another guy that was found headless uh, right by that dead man's valley area. So it seems like something about that area just kind of brings a lot, some bad omens. Right. And did they ever find the heads actually or just the decapitated bodies? Uh, you know what? I uh, This is another one where I've read a couple different stories on it. So one uh, – I. The main one I've read that I, I believe is that they never did find his skull, which was different with this one. Well, the McLeod brothers, I believe that they were able to find the skulls. Um, but there, there have some that argued that, but the main story I've read about said they never did find it, uh, that they just found his body with a gun laying close by to him, loaded and cocked, ready to fire. And uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, even after that incident, because he's now the third or maybe the fourth person who ends up uh, headless, there are newspaper reports now circulating about uh, headhunters in the valley. Did you read those accounts? You know what? I haven't read all of those. Uh, no, I have to. I would love to read some of that. So I, I have heard about. Um, There's another gentleman, and I'm trying to remember his name, but he was known as the Mad Trapper, and uh, he was a guy that had had some issues and, and was known to be pretty violent and wanted to live by himself in the mountains. And, uh, he, some people thought maybe he was up to stuff up there and he was known to have a bit of a violent history. So, um, some people thought that could have been it, but I uh, know I haven't read about the, the headhunters. What about the RCMP? Uh, did they get involved in these investigations? Uh, yeah, they, they did definitely with, uh, the uh, McLeod brothers, they're part. So they're, one of the main, uh, RCMP guys that gets told these stories is a guy named Poole Field. And uh, one of the stories I read said he was the one, one of the guys that found the bodies of the McLeod brothers when he was with Charlie. And uh, so he, he gets linked to it the, the most out of the RCMP. And uh, were there others after uh, Jorgensen and um, were there other incidents involving people losing their heads or are those the main, the main victims? I would say those are the main ones. Uh, there, there are a few other weird ones. Like there's one uh, about a guy named John O'Brien that was interesting. And uh, it was where basically he was found uh, atop a mountain. In, I'm getting, it must have been wintertime or borderline wintertime. But basically they found his body frozen and solid as a rock while kneeling right next to what looked like the remains of a fire. Uh, it, was, it was almost like he was flash frozen. And, uh, and he was basically – dead clutching a pack of matches in his hand in the story I read. Um, but these are, uh, the, those are the kind of stories I'd love to try to find tomorrow. But those are ones that when talking to the uh, first nation groups of the Dene, that they're hard to kind of c- collaborate with or see if they have any other things. A lot of them aren't familiar with those stories, but, but that's another one out there. I believe he was a world war one vet and it was, it would have been around, they said they're 1920, some 1920s to 1940s, somewhere around there. So he, that, that's another one of the kind of the interesting stories. 
tell me about the funeral range, this uh, mountain called the funeral range, uh, the scene of, uh, I guess, a couple of mysterious plane crashes or something. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the plane crashes, but the funeral range itself is a stunning uh, set of jagged mountains. Like um, when you see the kind of landscape up there, it's definitely rugged and difficult to travel through. You look at these areas and uh, some of them would be impassable on foot. Like they're just, unless you have a plane. But but even um, while I was traveling through the area, like the number of weather systems we hit in that time, like it, you know, like a lot of times when you get in the mountains, you the weather changes quickly. Uh, you get different different storm patterns, weather patterns, wind patterns. So uh, it would make total sense to me to, to see that you could have some planes uh, go down in the area. Uh, what are some of the other theories as to maybe what happened to these individuals who lost their heads? Um, you mentioned, you know, they may have been murdered by another prospector who was trying to protect his claim or steal their claim. Um, any other possible explanations you've run across? Yeah, you know, I think um, like R.M. Patterson, who he he's kind of his journals are kind of the main thing a lot of people go off because he he's writing way back in the early 1900s, but he kind of had some ideas in there that suggested like you know is it could it be the Dene that are um, maybe trying to keep people away from areas if there are gold and stuff like that, even though if you talk to Dene, they a lot of them say. They don't think there's a lot of gold up there and you don't really see any evidence of both from their end. But, and then some even like to talk about the Naha tribe, the mountain tribe who are these crazy warriors. And actually they, they've been known to actually, uh, um, have beheaded people. And, and that was kind of one of their traits, um, who kind of disappeared. And, uh, one of the stories I was told about them was basically all the, different tribal groups in the Diné got together as they were getting tired of these guys coming down attacking them and basically got all their warriors together to go up in the mountains and follow where they'd seem disappear to, to go hunt them down. And what I was told is they used some of their magic to kind of transform them into animals to help track them down and basically surprise them in the middle of the night and just wipe them out. And that's where the Naha tribe went. Uh, that's why they disappeared. The other group, other stories I've heard about are the Naha tribe wasn't even there. They found this kind of abandoned camp area and they just never came back. I've heard stories of the Naha naturally may have kind of weaved into the other Dene tribes as they're all kind of living in the same area. Um, there's been a number, but I think one interesting gentleman I talked to uh, was a man of uh, John Turner. And uh, he's the son of Dick Turner who wrote the book Nahani and was also a famous trapper. And John told me, unfortunately, he didn't listen to a lot of the stories growing up, which he kind of regrets now because uh, there was a lot of fascinating stories. But when you're being around, you kind of ignore it. But he, he had a very interesting comment where he said, you know what, the area is so wild and so vast. You got to remember that the difference between the Europeans or, or white men and the First Nations is the First Nations always traveled in groups. They were they were out in groups all the time. So if something happened, you could do something. You could save someone. If someone tripped or hurt themselves or fell off a cliff or was attacked by an animal. But he said a lot of the Europeans you got out there were outcasts or kind of lone wolves, guys that would travel on their own, whether they're a prospect or trapper explorer. So he kind of said, you know, there's a lot that can go wrong when you're in an area like this, whether you had an ax accident or some, some animal got you or, or even, yeah, you flipped your boat in the rapids or, 
even Virginia Falls. Uh, a lot of people say it was so dangerous because as you're approaching on the river, you can't hear it till pretty much right near the end. And by that point, it's too late to get off to the side. So that's part of the reason why there's so many accidents around there. But uh, but I thought that was kind of an interesting perspective in that uh, that idea of um, a lot of guys being out there alone kind of can lead to, you know, it doesn't give you a lot of options if something goes wrong. Right, right. Um, are there still uh, prospectors up there? People still panning for gold, etc.? Uh, I was told there's there's not, and I think it's just no one's really been able to find anything of some substantial amount in terms of looking for gold. So there are some people that I think like to go, like to kind of look for fun. But I don't, as far as I was told, no one is seriously going up there looking for gold anymore. So they've kind of let that go. But again, I think it's just it's the the time and money investment involved to get up there you're pretty isolated and hard to from a logistical standpoint even handling food and all that kind of stuff uh to the area you're, you're pretty you feel like you're pretty much in the middle of nowhere and and from what i'm told is when the further you go away from the river there's some areas that no one's ever set a foot in so um that's what really sparked my interest in the area besides these stories is you look at it and you go wow there's some areas that a human may never have gone into and you know, it seems like the perfect place for if there's ever going to be any mysteries or, or strange things happening. It one, it feeds it, but two, it makes you think it makes it more possible because you just don't know what's up in those areas. Where did you stay when you were up there? In a tent? Uh, myself, I stayed a bit in Fort Simpson in the town, but when I was in the Handy Butte, I actually stayed with the the First Nations. So they don't they don't have any uh, hotels, so to speak, but basically. They have one place. It's it's almost like a hostel. It's it's actually their general store, and they've converted a couple rooms in the back that you can stay in for people kind of traveling through. And then everyone else there is just uh, the local Dene that live there. So, so I spent my time there while talking with some of the elders to get some of the stories. And uh, um, I should have some more stories down the road. Some of them were spoken to me in Dene, so still getting it all translated. So I probably have a couple hours of stories that. I don't even know what they are specifically, but I do know they're talking a bit about the McLeod brothers and Dead Man's Valley and that. So uh, looking forward to get some of that translated to see what they said, because some of them, their English, they didn't feel co- as comfortable telling me in English because they couldn't explain it the same way as, as how I was told. So i um, hoping to have get a few more stories. Was there anyone in there uh, old enough to remember, I believe uh, Jorgensen's body was discovered not until the 1950s, uh, 1954, I think. Was there anyone who who recalled Jorgensen or recalled his body being found? Jorgensen, uh, none of the the Dene and the Hany Butte knew of him. So when I talked to him about it, none of them seemed to know. But um, there were one or two guys that are there, especially one gentleman uh, that I was told about who was away when I was up there, uh, who knows a lot more of the older story. So it's definitely the older generation um, that are would probably be more in their 70s, 80s. But uh, it, it was amazing to me how a, a lot of that those stories and info is already kind of starting to disappear. There's only a couple people left hanging on. A lot of the younger generation don't know a lot of the stories. And I think it's because even the ones older than them, a lot of them said, yeah, they weren't told it or they just didn't pay attention because at the time they didn't understand how special it was. So, While you were up there, did you have any sort of, I don't know, uneasy feelings or unusual experiences? Um, I, I wouldn't say I had any 
unusual experiences. I, I, I think uh, you definitely feel small in the area. It's, it's such a vast area. Um, I definitely saw some things fascinating I've never seen before. I saw buffalo swimming across a river. I never knew buffalo could swim. Uh, that was fascinating. There was tons hmm. of buffalo when I was there. It would have been actually this time of year in July. I was there last year, and uh, there was tons of black bears. So the black bears kind of limited me being able to go out and explore, wander off too deep. A lot of the locals said, no, not right now because they're all eating berries and they're hungry, and uh, this won't be the time to be wandering randomly. But uh, but I, I will say just the, the difference of all the areas, the vastness, uh, it definitely carries a very magical, special feel, like whether you're looking at uh, – even the tufa mounds, which are these large calcium deposits that that look almost alien in nature, and uh, with all the limestone and, and stuff, and Virginia Falls is so huge. Uh, it, it's you know I think anyone who's been to uh, Niagara Falls would have some sense of what it's like to be big, but you know it, it is just massive, and uh, but you definitely feel completely cut off from civilization. Even getting out there, you're driving hours just to get to a water taxi port before you take that and uh or even flying in it takes you an hour or two from fort simpson before you're kind of in the area and there's nothing in between it's just vast forest and mountains and canyons so it's uh so yeah my my next trip up there i'm hoping uh, when we kind of take this documentary further is to to actually spend a couple weeks to explore along the riverbanks and do actually a lot of the same route that rm patterson would have done so we can hit a lot of these areas on the ground and not from the air so uh, that's when I'm hoping to uh, maybe discover and experience uh, a few more things at the in the Nahanni Valley. How do they the people up there subsist? How do they survive? Um, a lot of them definitely tourism's a little bit. So you do get a certain number of people who do uh, river expeditions on the river. So they just kind of do a whitewater rafting trip, and they but they camp right by the river. They don't. They don't go in too far. They might do the odd little hike in. Um, so tourism would be a big one. Um, I know a lot of the – in the Haney Butte, a lot of them are still hunting stuff. They actually have a small airstrip. But, again, it's more from a logistical standpoint of bringing in food or whatever is needed for some of the tourists there. But but they don't get a ton there every year. Like, you know, there's only a certain number that are allowed to go there every year. I don't – from what I've told, they've never maxed that number out. Um I'm trying to remember what it was. I think last I looked, I want to say it's a couple thousand, but I don't think they've ever hit that number. So, um, but it's definitely pretty heavy tourism. And then when you get a little bit more down the Fort Simpson stuff, again, I think it's just the passage of goods traveling through with all the river systems and stuff like that. So if memory serves, I read an article, something about somewhere in the Nahani Valley, there is a passage to the interior of the earth is hollow earth theory. We have reports of one in Mount Shasta, one in Tibet, perhaps one underneath the, the pyramids in Egypt. Uh, am I misremembering or is there a legend of a passage to the hollow earth up in the Hani? Yeah. You know, I've read that, uh, as well. Um, I haven't heard anything beyond, uh, seeing some stuff online. People have posted just basic, uh, talking about that. There's potential, uh, I, what I, what I can confirm is I know that there are extensive cave systems up there. And uh, I believe it was even just a year or two ago, they found this huge cave kind of going deep with caverns and stuff going even deeper in. Um, 
and uh, that the national parks guys were were kind of presenting and posting. But they say there's a huge deep cavern system. So I, I, that's where a lot of those stories have come from. And they're, they've definitely been rarely explored too. So uh, again, these are areas that are kind of um, haven't been touched by a lot of people. And most of the guys up there would have been prospectors, trappers. It's still kind of new. You get, I think you get a few climbers and stuff going to some of the mountains, but um, from a caving standpoint, there's a huge, uh, a huge opportunity there to find and discover new areas. And uh, just because there is, it is such a vast area. So um, tell me then about the, uh, the, the progress on the documentary. What's next? When are you going to go up there next and, and start filming? Um, so what, We'd like to do it soon. I, my my gut, based on you know what's happening in the world right now and stuff, and we're still in the process of talking to different broadcasters. Uh, we're hoping to get up there next year. Uh, my goal, I'm hoping next summer. Uh, there's actually a small window you can actually go travel through the area where it's somewhat safe, and that's pretty much June to the end of August. You can push it a bit into September, but uh, outside of that, the weather with their winters up there and and stuff just get too harsh and too difficult to to manage. So, so we're hoping next summer to be able to get up there. And, and basically our goal is, is to basically do a kind of mix of a first person experience, uh, documentary, taking a film crew and some river guides and travel all along the South Nahanny river and hit all these spots. So we'd hit Virginia falls. Uh, we have already been permitted access to dead man's Valley, which, uh, most people can't get into. It's, it's restricted to the public. So spend some time there and, and as we go along, try to go a little bit off the river, not just stay along the river where most people are, though that's where most of the stories are. Uh, but try to get out a little bit and, and film with a small film crew and see what we can experience and capture and then combine that with uh, continuing to get more of the oral histories and some of the stories from locals there to to see if we can find more stories that complement the Arm Patterson stories and, and that to try to dig deeper. So uh, I can say what kicked it off for me was reading a lot of the, the things I've read have all, as they talk about all these mysteries, say, oh, and the local Diné had all these stories going back centuries that kind of added to it, but they never tell you what those stories are. And so my goal is to try to get those stories that uh, talk about what was happening even before Western Europeans showed up that, that maybe can give us more clues to some of the strange events going on there, whether... Um, there's even talks about uh, an animal called the Wahila, which is like a large bear dog. Like, w- are there any experiences around that? And uh, as well as the dead man's ballads itself, like what was it that made it feel like there was something evil or or dangerous about that area beyond it just being a difficult area to travel through? So, And are you planning or hoping to find the exact location where the McLeod brothers were found or Jorgensen, or do we even know? Uh, yeah, we can definitely find it. So the people there are, are super knowledgeable about that. I know a lot of the river guides know about it, um, as well as the local Dene. So, um, it, uh, so we will be able to hit those areas like where the McLeod brothers were is right off the river. They know the exact spot. Um, and then Jorgensen would have been uh, I don't know if they know the exact spot, but it's supposed to be right at the entrance to the Dead Man's Valley by the river. So uh, it, it, from what I've read, it was just inside. It was kind of just beyond where people normally went. And uh, so definitely want to try and visit that area to get a sense of, you know, it, it, it definitely makes you feel like, oh, was it just going that little extra into this area you're not supposed to go into that, that 
that led to his uh, demise or not. But uh, but yeah, I think there's just so many stories, and and even uh, there's a lot of other Dene stories I'm talking about that go back that. Um, I know a couple of the chiefs that I talked to said, you know, the area has a long history of, um, you know, this magic and kind of things that we don't understand today that maybe in the past we would have been more connected to. And, and uh, it's got kind of its own kind of life and spirits, the land itself. And, and there's a lot of other things to discover that they could relate to all these mysteries and how they all kind of intertwine. And so um, that's what I'm, hoping to discover as we head back up there and, and explore the area a little bit more in depth. Do you think you might even be able to solve the mystery or solve the murder if that's the case? I don't know if we'll get there. It's, it, uh, I mean, the, the gentleman I talked to who knew Charlie sound like that was pretty strong, whether we'll be able to figure that out, but I kind of look at it and go, uh, whichever these tales are, are true and false. There, there's one thing I, I think I've known from even exploring other areas uh, in the world that have kind of a mysterious background is that there's just something about that place. There's, a, there's an energy, there's kind of something you can't explain or put your finger on, but there's something about it that uh, gives you a certain feeling and, and suggest, can even lead to the possibility of some of these things. And whether you want to look at it black and white or scientific, uh, my hope is with this documentary is that we're able to kind of share the essence and, and if not solve it, be able to kind of continue the story and, and continue the discussion of, well, maybe this was possible or this. And, uh, as opposed to be able to check off yes, no, for all these stories. Mark, finally, give us a, a little uh, plug for fresh cut. Tell us about uh, this film company. Ah, fresh. So fresh cut itself. Uh, we're a media company out in Calgary. So, uh, our main work is we do a lot of stuff for uh, companies, a lot of corporate video, a lot of educational e-learning and training, marketing. We do a lot of tourism work, so uh, we'll work film stuff with whether it's Travel Alberta or Manitoba. We've done stuff in the U.S. and Bermuda. Um, so definitely more of a corporate side of thing, but our background, all the guys there, we're all kind of TV guys. We all kind of grew up from that world, and one of my first jobs was a uh, – working for a company called Tartan TV in Scotland, which was all on Scotland and Scottish culture. And, and so that's what's kind of led me in this passion. We're, we're lucky with the company we have that we have all the gear and equipment that we can kind of chase stories we want to uh, explore further. And being that we spent a lot of time, even our corporate work filming in northern Alberta, northern BC and remote areas, we're, we're kind of used to taking gear and working in those locations. So uh, it just seemed like a natural uh, – Thing to kind of explore and, and try to do a documentary on this. Uh, like you said, it's, it's an amazing story, the Nahani, and it's amazing how few people know about it. Even people who work in the tourism industry in Canada, a number of people are I'm like, they've never heard of it and, or Dead Man's Valley. And I, I feel like, oh, these are the stories that would be, I think we should share more and, and celebrate and explore more. It's fascinating this place exists so close to us, even though it is so remote at the same time. Well, it certainly uh, ticks all the boxes, and uh, I look forward to seeing the documentary soon. I wish you good luck, and thanks for hanging out. Great meeting you. Yeah, you too, Richard. Thanks for your time, and it was great to meet you as well. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. 
Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.